Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Um, as Rebecca said, my name is Alambra Frary and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am thrilled to introduce you all to the newest member of the Penn Medicine Division of Complex Family Planning, Dr. Chioma Ndubisi. And I'm super appreciative that Dr. Ndubisi agreed to join me in presenting today on updates and contraception. This is a sponsored activity provided by Penn Medicine, Cognomed, and Evolve Medical Education. And our educational objectives today are that we hope that at the conclusion of this program, learners will be able to understand the historical context of contraception in the United States, to utilize best practices for contraceptive provision, and to understand current and future contraceptive options for our patients. These are the disclosures that we would like to share. And then we have some thank yous as well. We wanna thank the complex family planning specialists around the country that you can see listed here on the slide for their support and sharing some slides with us for this presentation. And we would also like to thank the Center for Male Contraception and Research Development. Um, I would also like to make a quick point about the language that we will use throughout the presentation. I wanna address the fact that not all pregnancy capable people identify as women. So while our slides may include some gendered language and we may say women or woman, we will try to be inclusive of all people who can become pregnant and have a need for contraception. This is um, layout of our presentation today. We'll start with an overview and some historical context, review patient-centered counseling, um, as well as quick starting methods and then share some exciting new products as well as existing updates on um, as well as updates on the existing products that we're using today for our patients. And now I am pleased to turn it over to Dr. Ndubisi for a bit. All right. Good morning and thank you for having me here and I'm happy to be back home. So what's the ideal when we think about the American family? Since 1936, Gallup has been asking Americans in their polling, what do you think is the ideal number of children for a family to have? The, the, ideal, the average number of children desired per family was 3.6 when the survey was started. It declined from 1957 to 1978, and then it's remained pretty much stable around 2.6 since that time. But imagine the effort that it takes to achieve this goal. To do this, a pregnancy-capable person will spend nearly three years pregnant, postpartum, or attempting pregnancy, but about three decades trying to avoid an unintended pregnancy. But in reality, the actual fertility rate is in fact lower than the ideal. In 2017, the total number of births per family was 1.77 on average. And in addition, the, fertil the fertility rates are declining. But on the flip side, if a sexually active couple uses no contraception, they have an 85% chance of a pregnancy by the end of the year. So obviously in the US, people are using contraception. When used correctly, modern contraceptives are very effective at preventing pregnancy. Two thirds of US individuals who use contraceptives consistently and correctly throughout the course of any given year account for only 5% of all unintended pregnancies. The one third of individuals who use contraceptives inconsistently or don't use contraceptives at all account for 95% of unintended pregnancies. As physicians, we have the ability to identify those patients who are inconsistently using contraceptives. 
but do not desire pregnancy and help them with this. And new contraceptive methods increase options for individuals seeking to prevent pregnancy. But before we look to the future, I think it's really important that we take a step back and look at the history of contraception coercion in this country. And I would also like to talk a bit about bias counseling as we consider how we can do better moving forward. The US has a long history of reproductive coercion and forced sterilization, and it still impacts our patients' perceptions and experiences today. In Montgomery, Alabama, Mary Alice, age 12, and her sister, Minnie, age 14, who were mentally disabled, were being administered injectable contraceptives. And in 1973, their mother, who was unable to read, placed an X on a form, thinking she was continuing to consent for the contraceptive inject injectables. Instead, the girls and their mother were transferred to a hospital and the mother was escorted home. And the girls were sterilized the very next morning. The parents didn't even know the surgeries had been done. The Southern Poverty Law Center filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Ralph sisters and exposed, exposed this widespread practice of sterilization abuse funded by the federal government and also practiced for decades. An estimated 100,000 to 150,000 poor people were sterilized annually under federally funded programs. Many others were forced to agree to be sterilized when doctors threatened to terminate their, wel their welfare benefits. In 1973, at LA County USC Medical Center, a doctor by the name of Bernard Rosenfeld was appalled at the sterilization he witnessed of Mexican-American women and co-authored a report on sterilization abuse across the nation. Women were often pressured into sterilization late in their labors prior to a C-section, consented in English or not even at all. He sought out the help of Antonia Hernandez, a young attorney who argued that there is an established individual right to procreate. Although the court sided with the hospital, important results of the ruling were that forms would be made under multiple languages and welfare benefits could not be terminated. But one of the dark moments of contraceptive history is the Norplant controversy. Norplant, just as a review, was a levonorgestrel implant. It was essentially five matchstick size implants that were placed underneath the skin and the arm, essentially the precursor to what we know now as Nexplanon. It was on the market from 1991 to 2002. And during that time, 13 state legislators proposed measures to provide financial incentives for Norplant use to women on welfare. Seven states proposed measures requiring certain women to use Norplant, for instance, women who had a state-funded abortion and women who tested positive for drugs in pregnancy. And in four states, judges mandated Norplant injection as sentencing requirements. There are also many stories of doctors who refuse to remove Norplant. This is one of the many reasons why each time you place a large device, you should reassure your patient that you will remove it at any time and for any reason. However, this history was not so long ago. And, and our patients have relatives and friends that are victims of this abuse and they have heard their stories. So does any of the history that I just spoke about relate to the beliefs of the 21st century? Well, this study was done in 2004 
They interviewed 698 African-American patients between the ages of 15 and 44. As you can see, nearly 35% of Black women they interviewed agreed with the statement that medical institutions use poor and minority people as guinea pigs to try new birth control. The other questions I included here just further illustrate the concerns minority patients may have about their reproductive freedom. The author did another study where 67% of African-American patients reported that they experienced race-based discrimination in family planning visits. So are patients of color and also patients of lower socioeconomic status counseled differently? Well, minority and low-income patients are more likely to report being pressured to use birth control methods and limit their, their family size. They are also more likely to be dissatisfied with their family planning provider. Providers are more likely to recommend IUDs to low socioeconomic minority patients as compared to low socioeconomic white patients. This shows how our message may be perceived to different patients than what we intend, whether or not it is a conscious decision. Also, it speaks to the need to listen to patients and their individual priorities rather than assuming efficacy as a priority. Some important steps we can all take to eliminate contraception coercion is to address our personal biases, engage in unconscious bias trainings, then also we must use shared decision-making during contraception counseling and trust and empower our patients. At the heart of all this is reproductive autonomy, which encompasses the power to freely make the many choices relevant to reproduction, including those that relate to sexuality and parenting. Unbiased, effective, patient-centered contraceptive counseling is a really important part of this. So with patient-centered counseling, one pretty simple approach to this counseling is the one key question. What would, when would you like to become pregnant? Usually in the next year. This is meant to facilitate counseling or contraception or preconception counseling, depending on the answer. Some benefits of this is that it's quick, it's easy to incorporate into your encounter, and it's also meant to be open-ended. The limitation is that it's dichotomous and that it may not be leaving room for complex feelings that many patients may have surrounding the possibility of pregnancy. Another approach is the path questions. You assess the patient's attitude about pregnancy, timing, and how important it is to prevent pregnancy. Again, it's, it opens the conversation for contraception and preconception counseling. And the last question provides an opening for information regarding efficacy. But just truly effective counseling just starts by building a rapport with your patient. Then it's important to identify those that are appropriate to receive contraceptive counseling. I do this with the question of, does it feel helpful to talk about birth control or pregnancy prevention today? Then after identifying, it is of course important to assure that you are providing safe contraception so reviewing the patient's medical history is essential. Then after assessing safety, I ask about preferences. Then I usually initiate the part of the counseling with a question of, do you have a sense of what is important about your method of birth control? And I use this, then the standard, do you have a method in mind? 
because it doesn't assume that patients are aware of all options and how those options relate to their preference. Now, assessing safety, my guess is that most, if not all of you are already familiar with the CDC medical, medical eligibility criteria and also the selected patient um, practice recommendations. But in case any learners are here today and just not aware of this resource, I just thought that I'll just touch on it briefly. Medical eligibility criteria provides recommendations for the safety of contraceptives um, for patients with medical conditions. And then SBR is just evidence-based guidance on how to use methods safely and effectively once you have determined that they are medically appropriate. And then also real quick within the SPR, it's information on how to quick start contraceptives, which is a which is really important part of helping our patients with contraceptive um, efficacy. This means that any patient with a negative pregnancy test can start methods of birth control on the same day they see you. The algorithm you see here is from an amazing website, Reproductive Health Access Project, and it can be really helpful as a reference. But the one big exception to quick starting is the IUD. Since inserting an IUD when a patient is at risk of luteal phase pregnancy can be very problematic. And then on to the future. <laughs> 